All right, everybody, it's uh, Scoots here, and uh, hey, patrons, this uh, may sound a little bit uh, different. I'm just in a different location here, or I might end, uh, but I'm going to record uh, every episode on the same mic or the other episode you're listening to. I'm coming to you live from my co-working space. I wonder what the person in the office next to me is thinking, if they can hear me. Probably they can't, uh, but uh, we're going to be covering episode two. You may hear this first. I think you will, because this is the first time I'm doing this. And even though we're talking about episode two, series eight, collection five. Um, yeah, I think we'll see how it goes. So we're gonna, this is a patron-only show, Facts Behind the Bake Off. And yeah, let's get into it. Uh, we're talking about, well, let's talk about Series 8. It was uh, came up and began on uh, the 29th of August, 2017. It was the first one on Channel 4 after Love Productions moved the show. It was the first series for Noel and uh, Sandy and Prue. I knew it was Prue's first season. I didn't realize it was Noel and Sandy's first season. Also, unfortunately, I got spoiled, uh, but because uh, I didn't know who won, but uh, that's fine. So, okay, so let's do some stuff I looked up first. The first thing I looked up from episode two was Zumba. Uh, so, uh, and the reason I looked up Zumba is because my, oh, wait one second. Let me just see if I can go to episode two. Okay, no. But yeah, so Yan's uh, wife uh, that does Zumba. And Zumba, according to Wikipedia, was created in the 1990s in Colombia by uh, Beto Perez. I actually had a friend named Beto, Alberto. uh, Well, actually, no, we called him Berto. I think there was a Beto, though. Okay, but it's uh, trademark, so we should say that. but yeah, it was recreated in the 90s. I would have thought it was around even longer. And according to the Wikipedia article, forgot to bring, uh, Perez forgot to bring their music to their aerobics class. And they happened to have tapes of some Latin dance music, salsa and merengue, and they danced to them instead. And later was teaching it as rumba size, rumba size, rumba size, probably. Zumba, rumba. Isn't isn't the thing that vacuums your floors room but two? Uh, then partnered with some other business people, released a series of fitness videos sold by an infomercial, and then some companies invested and expanded into class instruction. According to Perlman, there were more than in 2012 14 million Zumba students in 186 countries. Uh, Zumba has uh, several meanings in Castilian, Castilian and Latin American Spanish. Uh, according to Zumba, though, it's a neologism. Neologism uh, expressly created as a brand name. And if you, uh, Roomba size, though, is a portmanteau. So shout out to Helen Z. Uh, Roomba. And jazzercise is Roomba size. Uh, 
which is kind of like a party version of jazzercise. So there's 16 core steps, uh, four basic basic rhythms, salsa, reggaeton, merengue, and cumbia. And each basic rhythm has four core steps. The classes are about an hour long. Uh, let's see, it's uh, total body or cardio, uh, aerobic workout. Uh, you can burn, uh, well, let's not get into the actual facts. Uh, because it has different uh, uh, options. You can do it at all ages, uh, 0 to 100. I don't know if anybody can zero that's 0 years old could do anything. Roomba size, they could listen. And, of course, like all exercise, has a lot of benefits. The annual ZINCON, Z-I-N-CON, takes place in the U.S. where Zumba instructors from all over the Zumba instructors come by. There was a Zumba cruise in 2016. And uh, there was a Zumba Academy. Uh, they have Zumba Apparel. Uh, Zumba video games. So that's a little bit about Zumba. Uh, what about wheelbarrow? Wheelbarrow is one word according to Wikipedia. I thought it was two. Uh, so there's also a robot according to Wikipedia, wheelbarrow. A wheelbarrow is a small hand-propelled vehicle, usually just one wheel, designed to be pushed and guided by a single person, two handles at the rear or by sail to push the ancient wheelbarrow by wind. The term wheelbarrow is made from two words, uh, wheel and barrow. A barrow is a derivation of uh, B-A-R-E-W from the Old English, a device for carrying loads. Uh, Wheelbarrows designed to carry the weight its load uh, between the wheel and the operator convenient carriage of heavier and bulkier loads like uh biscuit flour is that what Knowles is carrying oh he's rising flour self-raising flour uh, it's a second class lever or lever uh, uh they get used in construction and gardening in different capacities a two-wheel that uh, type is more stable, but a uh, universal one-wheel type. I guess it's not universal, though. If there's a two-wheel type, it's better maneuverability in small places, planks in water, or when uh, tilted ground would throw it off balance. Uh, also, it creates greater control of the deposition of the load upon emptying. And the history, uh, pretty extensive, so you could, I'll link to it, but... Uh, the earliest wheelbarrows in archaeological evidence uh, were a form of one-wheel cart from 2nd century Han, Han Dynasty. And they were in murals and uh, brick tomb reliefs uh, for Emperor Hugh. A uh, painted tomb mural of a man pushing a wheelbarrow uh, dates precisely to 118 AD. Uh, there's another one from 150 AD. And a single wheel uh, barrow in a mural in a shrine, uh, 147 AD. Earlier accounts date back to uh, first century BC. Uh, the fifth century, the fifth century book of later Han states that the wife of a once born youth, youthful 
uh, Imperial Censor helped him push a Lichu back to his village uh, during their feeble wedding ceremony around 30 BC. So yeah, it goes into it goes through the history into the two two hundred eighties annotations into the four thirties and then into the Song Dynasty. Uh, and this is wheelbarrows in China came in two types. The more common type after the third century was a large centrally mounted wheel. Prior types were universally front wheeled. Wheelbarrows, central wheeled wheelbarrow it could transport six human passengers. And instead of a laborious amount of energy extracted on the human or the driver pulling it, the weight of the burden was evenly distributed between the wheel and the puller. Uh, there's also Chinese sailing carriages from the 6th century, land sailing vehicles. They weren't wheelbarrows. Uh, uh, the date of the sail assisted wheelbarrow being invented is not certain. Uh, some of this history is seen in writings uh, in the 1700s. And they have Greece and Rome after that. This is in the 400s. Uh, uh, a one-wheeled cart. Uh, uh, different building inventories in the 400 B.C. is uh, a one-wheeler. But there's no evidence uh, to prove it. This is just a hypothesis. So, actually, most consensus says that, uh, like the consensus from historians says that the wheelbarrow was invented in China around 100 AD and spread to the world. Though, one historian does say it could have existed in ancient Greece. A lot of things could have existed. So, let's jump to medieval Europe. That was in the 11 and 1200s. Uh, that's when they first appeared. Uh, featured a wheel at the front. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit modern. There's a lot of modern variations, but yeah, that's a little bit about wheelbarrows. What do we got next? Oh, malt. Oh boy. Do I love malt and I love Liam's love of malt and it definitely some stuff I wanted to find more about, uh, malt is a germinated cereal grain that's been dried in a process known as malting where the grain is made to germinate by soaking it in water and then halted from germinating by drying it with hot air. And they say, Scooch, you got some malt. It develops enzymes required for modifying the starches into sugars and uh, maltodextrins. It also develops proteases that break down the proteins in the grains that can be used by yeast. Uh, and uh, I know you can use malt in uh, production of uh, beverages, uh, but uh, it also malt contains small sugars, uh, sucrose and fructose, uh, but those aren't products of starch modification. They're, they're already in the grain. Oh, further condition of ferment, further conversion of fermentable sugars is in the malt mashing process. That's an alcohol. So it's used beer, whiskey, malted milk, malt vinegar, uh, dessert confections, flavored drinks, baked goods, uh, including malt loaf, bagels, and rich tea biscuits. And it can be ground into a coarse meal known as sweet meal. Various cereals are malted, though barley is the most common. And a high-protein form of malted barley is uh, labeled listed ingredients in blended flours. 
the term malt refers to the process, products to the process, the grains to which this process has been applied. For example, malted barley, the sugar, heavy in malto, maltose, uh, or cereals, products based on malted milk, like a milkshake. And uh, they've been using it as an ingredient of beers in Egypt uh, with the Sumerians in China. Uh, in Persia, and this is all according to Wikipedia, uh, in Persian countries, a sweet paste uh, made from German, germinated wheat is called Samanu, uh, in Iran, Samanak, uh, in Afghanistan, Tajik, oh, in Afghanistan, Sumalak, uh, and uh, let's see what else, uh, traditionally cook it late in the night uh, a Finnish Lenten food known as mamimi is a, a kind of Easter porridge I wanted to hear about how they, like Pruitt said they gave it to her during the war, let's see if that's malt extract uh, uh, it's a trickle a treacle-like substance used as a dietary supplement, I think this is a popular in the first half of the 20th century yeah, as a nutritional enhancer for the tr- children of the British urban working class. Uh, children were given cod liver oil for the same reason, but that was unpalatable. So it was combined with the extract of malt to produce malt and cod liver oil. And uh, they said uh, nutritional extract of malt does not include a mash out at the end of the extraction. Uh, it's uh, malt extract is frequently used in brewing beer. I think it malt extract beer. So what people like that's more of a home brew. Because uh, I think I don't know. I thought people said extract beer back when I drank was not good. Science, according to the research at the end, uh, scientists aim to discover what happens inside uh, barley grains that become malted to help plant breeders. Uh, Produce better malting barley for barley for food and beverage products. But yeah, that's a little bit about malt. How about glitter? Let's get into glitter here. Uh, using an assortment of small reflective particles that come in a variety of sizes and shapes. Uh, glitter particles reflect life at different ang- light. Yeah, they do reflect life though too. Uh, the first production of modern glitter, I think we read this before, was uh, American machinist uh, Henry Rushman Sr., who found a way to cut sheets of plastic a mylar into a glitter uh, in 1934, because during World War II, glass glitter was unavailable. Rushman found a market for scrap plastics, uh, which were ground into glitter. Uh, he purchased Meadowbrook Farm in New Jersey, where he founded Meadowbrook Inventions to produce industrial glitter. Decades later, he filed a pass a patent for a mechanism for cross-cutting films and other related inventions. Today, there's over 20,000 varieties of glitter, vast number of different colors, sizes, and materials. Uh, 10 million pounds of glitter was purchased between 1989 and 2009, uh, but there's no source with a reference point for that. Commercial glitter uh, 
And I know glitter's not great. You know, glitter, keep, don't throw it in the garbage. Keep it in your house. Uh, ancient glitter, though, this is what we're interested in. Glittering surfaces have been used since prehistoric times in arts and cosmetics. Uh, the English word glitter comes from uh, glitterin, an old Norse glitara. 30,000 years ago, mica flakes were used to cave paintings a glittering appearance. Uh, and prehistoric humans were believed to have used cos- cosma- cos- cosmetics uh, from a hermolite, a sparkling mineral. Uh, 8,000 years ago, people of the Americas were using galena, a form of lead, to produce uh, bright grayish white glittering paint uh, used for objects of adornment. Uh, uh, surface mining was uh, prevalent in the upper Mississippi Valley region uh, from 40,000 B.C. to 200 B.C. Egyptians produced glitter-like substances uh, from natural be- natural stuff. Uh, uh, Mayan temples, it's believed, uh, were sometimes painted with red, green, and gray, 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 red, green, and gray glitter from mica dust. Uh, why is glitter used? Uh, well, prior to fabrics made with modern glitter, sequins were sewn or woven on fabric to give it an appearance. Uh, edible glitter made from gum. Uh, Arabic is uh, used by culinary artists uh, like Stacy on the episode of Great British Bake Off. Uh, glitter is used in cosmetics uh, to make the face or nails so shiny, shiny or sparkly. Additionally, it is used in uh, arts and crafts to color and accessorize. It uh, at one point was more associated with uh, subtext, subculture, with uh, glam rockers, uh, David Bowie, Gary Glitter, Iggy Pop, uh, glam rock, glitter rock. Uh, uh, now, there is an environmental impact, uh, and they've called for a ban on glitter made from PETE because it's a microplastic, uh, so that's no good. Uh, but there are, you can make biodegradable glitter from uh, eucalyptus tree extract uh, metaled with aluminum. Uh, it's 40% softer and more delicate on the skin than conventional glitter, and it decomposes. Uh can also make cellulose glitter. So that's a little bit about glitter. There's a lot of articles linked if you're interested in learning more. Uh, let's see what else came up. Uh, okay, we got this, this game, Cop It. Uh, Jumanji, the original. Uh, Let's start with that. Cop, it is a running fight board game, which we'll read more about. Uh, uh, it was created in 1827 by Otto Mayer Verlag and was originally called Fang Din Hut or Capture the Hat in English. Uh, it was renamed and re-released, re-released several times. Uh, notably by Spears Games in 18, 1964. It's a game for two to six players. Uh, strategies based partly on luck and uh, partly on rolling a dice. Uh, similar to the game Ludo, in nominally a children's game. 
And let's see, each player has four conical hat-shaped playing pieces, all the same color that start off in their home base. So, so, so far it's like Trouble, or Sorry, I forget which one. Uh, the object is to move out of your base, capture your cop or your opponent's pieces by landing on them. Oh, and carry them back to your base. A uh, player can have uh, any number of pieces uh, out of their base at any time. Uh, however, while you're moving back to your base with a captured piece, other players may in turn capture your piece. The winner is the last player to have an uncaptured piece. There are a few squares on the board that are different color to rest. If a piece is on that, it can't be captured. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess it comes back to... Uh, some of it comes down to uh, roles. Uh, okay, this is like a, just an article about board games, ancient board games, uh, uh, games in the United States, uh, other parts of the world, uh, other media, research categories. Uh, I forgot what that's called, chase the tail type game or something. Let's see what Ludo says. Ludo uh, is a strategy game for two to four players where they race their four tokens from start to finish uh, according to the rules of a single die. Like other cross and circle games, uh, Ludo is uh, derived from uh, the Indian game Pachisi, P-A-C-H-I-S-I. Uh, the game and variations are popular in many countries. Uh, uh, the Mahabhar Mahab uh, the Mahabharata. Uh, this is Pachisi was created in India in the sixth century, and the earliest evidence of this game's in evolution is that it was depicted on boards in the caves of Ellora. Uh, the original version is also described in uh, the Indian epic uh, Mahabharata. And uh, uh, it's a big part of the story. Uh, has been known by other names. Uh, it was modified to use a cubic die and dice cup uh, and then patented as Ludo in England in 1896. The Royal Navy took Ludo and converted it into the board game. Uker, U-C-K-E-R-S, Ukers. Uh, special areas of the board are typically col- brightly colored. Each player has a color and four tokens. So I think this is very similar, like international variants. Uh, aggravation, headache. Oh, trouble, there we go. No, but not sorry. I'm not sorry because uh, there's a difference between Ludo and uh, Trouble and Sorry. Okay, Cross and Circle Game, not to be confused with Tic-Tac-Toe. It's a board game designed for use by Race. Race. Uh, it's a board game. Uh, the game uh, composes a circle, four equal portions, a cross inscribed on it with four spokes, like four spokes in a wheel. The classic example of this game is Ute, Y-U-T. However, the term cross and circle games also apply applied to boards that replace a circle with a square. Uh, Ludo Parcheesi, uh, which uh, 
Pachisi is Parcheesi is descended from that. I don't think I've ever played Parcheesi either. I know it's popular on like uh, TV shows. It's been expanded and copied for different games with more spokes, aggravation, trivial pursuits. Uh, what else we got? A lot of esoteric connections. Uh, they may suggest a variety of mythical symbol, symbolic or esoteric designs, mandalas, sun and earth symbols, Celtic, Copic, Greek crosses. Uh, however, the visual similarities do not prove a deeper connection. Uh, so that's a slippery slope, uh, trying to interpret stuff that's not there. They say, hey, there's a list of cross, cross, cross and circle games. Uh, but I want to get to Jumanji. Now we really enjoyed the, uh, modern Jumanji movies, uh, like, uh, the video game Jumanji movies, but, uh, I don't know if I've watched the original Jumanji with my daughter. I'm going to have to, it's, uh. If you want to know more, though, it's a 19, wow, 1995 fantasy adventure film directed by Joe Johnston, uh, loosely based on a 1981 book uh, by Chris Van Ellsberg. First installment of the Jumanji franchise was written by Van Ellsberg, Greg Taylor, Jordan Hensley, and Jim Strain. Uh, stars Robin Williams, David Allen Greer, Kristen Dunst, uh, Jonathan Hyde, Bonnie Hunt, and Bebe Newworth, uh, and it centers on a board game that releases uh, jungle-based hazards upon its players with every turn they take. Uh, one of the like as a boy in 1969, and someone got stuck in the game while playing with his friend. 26 years later, siblings, siblings Judy and Peter find the game, begin playing and then release the now-adult Alan. After tracking, I didn't realize how closely the plot followed the, uh, I totally forgot about this movie, I guess. It was released in 1995, mixed reviews, but box office success uh, grossed $263 million uh, worldwide, and it had an animated children's television series, uh, there was a related film, uh, Space Adventure, uh, and then Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and The Next Level. So that's a little bit about Jumanji. And then uh, coming up here will be Scoots uh, talking about episode one. We're out of order, and you're off to dreamland. Thanks, and good night, everybody. All right, patrons, it's Scoots here, and uh, I'm trying to cover some of the facts from uh, Great British Bake Off. Uh, episode 1, uh, Series 8, uh, what do you call it, uh, Collection 5, I think, on, uh, what's that thing called, Netflix. And this was Peru's uh, Peru's first season, so I thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about Peru. And it says that uh, she's a chancellor of Queen Margaret uh, University in Edinburgh. Uh, she was a judge on BBC's Two's Great British Menu uh, for 11 years before joining the Great British Bake Off in 2017. Uh, let's see, it says Pru is a dame, uh, Pru uh, Leth, uh, DBE, 
And let's see. So in the 1960s, uh, Peru went to Cordon Bleu Cookery School and then began a business uh, supplying high-quality business lunches, lunches uh, which grew to become uh, less lace, lace, uh, less, uh, lace uh, good food, a party and event caterer, caterer. In 1969, hold on, I'm going to look up how to say her name, Prulitha. I want to say lace, but it's Prulitha. Lace, uh, no, it is lace. Uh, kind of like, like yeah. and uh, so Pru opened up her Michelin-starred restaurant, Lace in Notting Hill. Lace uh, in Notting Hill uh, sold it in 1995. Wow, so it was open from uh, just before 1970 to 1995. In uh, 1975, she formed the Lace School of Food and Wine. And that was sold in uh, Lace, uh, Pru Lace College. And this, I saw a YouTube video, uh, a modern one, but she was the first uh, woman appointed to the British Railways Board in 1977 and uh, tried to improve its much-criticized catering. The catering division Traveler's Fair was detached from the hotel's business in 1982. And on top of being an entrepreneur and running uh, all these businesses and doing this other stuff, uh, Lace became a food columnist. This is all from Wikipedia, by the way, uh, for the Daily Mail, Sunday Express, The Guardian, and The Daily Mirror. Wrote 12 cookery books, including Lace Cookery Bible. Has written seven novels. So I did not, I'm glad we got to read this because I had no idea. I mean, you know, uh, you can tell, like, her wit is sharp and her keen intelligence and taste and, and just ability to uh, put that into words. Uh, so this all makes sense. Uh, so seven novels, the last to form a part of the Food of Love trilogy, which has been opted to be a TV series, uh, published uh, her memoir in, 19, in 2012. And then uh, her first television appearance in the 1970s was as a presenter from a 13-episode magazine series aimed at uh, uh, cooking at home. She was a last-minute replacement for someone else, uh, and she had no experience. And the director liked everything scripted, including the interviews, and she didn't like that experience. And I just saw a YouTube video where she was saying that she likes that unscriptedness of uh, you know, not being a presenter. On uh, GBB later, is that right? Great British Bake Off, yeah. Uh, later in the 1980s, uh, she was uh, she had two television programs about her and her career. Uh, uh, Channel 4's Take Six Cooks and the Best of the British, a series about young entrepreneurs. Uh, she was on the Channel 4's Poverty Commission. And then she became back to television to be a judge on the Great British Menu for 11 years until 2016, uh, My Kitchen Rules, uh, and then left to replace uh, Mary Berry in the Great British Bake Off on Channel 4. She's been involved in food education as a chair of the Royal Society of Arts, uh, she focused the cha- created the charity Focus on Food, and now known as the Soil Association. 
Uh, she has a charity training for life, a nonprofit restaurant uh, that trains people, uh, Food Strand. She was a member of the Food Strand of the Grant, Grant, Grant Giving Foundation, uh, Fair Bairn. Uh, worked on the chair of the school food trust, and uh, now it's known. It was known as the trust, and now the children's food trust. Uh, they run Let's Get Cooking, an organization of five thousand cooking uh, clubs in state schools, and she's a patron of that. She's vice president of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, a trustee of the Baby Taste Journey, a patron of the. Uh, Institute for Food, Brain, and Behavior sustains campaign for better hospital food and Prulis, uh Chef's Academy. She's active in general uh, education, chairing uh, Ashridge Management College, Three E's Enterprises, uh, chairman of uh, the Governors of Secondary School at King's College. She's involved in a lot of other, so she's just all around uh, as amazing as she is on the show. And uh, let's see. Oh, she was appointed. Here's what I was looking for. She was appointed to the Order Officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE, in 1989. The Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, in 2010. And then Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2021. So it goes OBE, CBE, DBE. And by me, you know, Bruce, uh, pretty awesome. So all amazing. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a little bit about episode one, which was cake episode. And the first thing they were making, or one of the things were these Swiss rolls. And the brand name in the U.S. is Ho-Ho. But we had them under, and maybe we did have them. I would never had that, that brand. We always had the uh, Little Debbie's brand, which may have been Swiss Rolls. It may have been called something else. I can't think of it. Uh, uh, it's known as, a, according to Wikipedia, uh, Swiss Roll, Jelly Roll, Roll Cake, Cream Roll, Roulade, or Swiss Log. A type of sponge cake filled with whipped cream, jam, or icing. Uh, it didn't uh, appear... It's even though it's Swiss, it originated elsewhere in Central Europe, possibly Austria. It could have been invented alongside the Battenberg cake, donuts, and the Victoria sponge. Oh, maybe these are ones Ho Ho's, Yodels, and Swiss cake rolls. Let's see. Yodels are from Drake's. We didn't have those. wonder if it's 6666. A type of cake roll called a Yule log is served at Christmas. It's a spiral shape uh, and, uh, and you know, can have different fillings uh, depending on the country. It could be cho- coated in chocolate. Let's see. History, the earliest printed, prefer- printed published reference uh, was in Northern Farmer in uh, Utica, New York. Uh, wow. Uh, so shout out 1852, how to make jelly cake. Uh, it describes a modern jelly roll. Bake quick and uh, while hot, spread with jelly. Roll carefully, wrap in cloth, and then when it's cool, cut in slices. Uh, and it evolved uh, jelly cake, roll jelly cake, Swiss roll, jelly roll, roll, roll jelly cake. 
Uh, roll sandwich or Swiss pudding also appears in the second edition of the Complete Biscuit and Gingerbread Assistance in 1854. And what else we got? The origin of the term is unknown. Uh, the earliest British references to a baked item is in the Birmingham Journal. Uh, yeah, there's different styles, uh, even ones, uh, uh, is there ones that are not, are savory? Uh, pretty much all over the world at this point. Oh, Ubi one. Oh, that looks good. And a mango one in the Philippines. Uh, oh yeah, Swiss cake rolls made by Little Debbie. So that's the one I had. Uh, let's just see. Yodels are made by the Drake's company. Uh, bought by McKee Foods after HB went bankrupt. Uh, uh, similar to Hostess brand. And let's hop over here to McKee Foods. I guess is this uh, it's a private company that owns a Little Debbie. It's privately family-owned snack food and granola man- manufacturer in Tennessee. Maker Little Debbie Sunbelt Granola and Bakery. Heartland Brands, and Drake's Cakes. The uh, company was founded during the Great Depression. Uh, the McKees, uh, they started selling cakes uh, in the Chattanooga area, and then they expanded, bought a bakery. Jack's Cookie Company did well for a few years, but they still wanted to expand more. And But they started the business, uh, relocated, really sold that business, relocated to Charlotte, North Carolina, and sold the Charlotte plant. Then they moved back to Chattanooga in the 50s uh, to deal with some family stuff. Uh, then they bought, they bought back the bakery, which was renamed McKee Baking Company from King's Bakery. This is 62. Then they moved to Collegedale. And in 1991, what became the McKee Foods Corporation, uh, in uh, 2013, McKee Foods bought Hostess's Drake's brand, which included Ringdings, Yodels, and Devil Dogs, uh, or dogs uh, that we don't speak of. Uh, as of 2013, McKee ships over 900 million cartons of uh, Little Debbie products each year. Uh, Little Debbie products are cookie and cake-based snacks of dozens of varieties. Swiss rolls, nutty bars, fudge rounds, I mean star bars are the thing for me. Oatmeal cream pie. Uh, They're available in most uh, grocery stores, both in boxes and individual wrapping. Named after four-year-old Debbie. And now Debbie McKee Fowler serves as executive vice president on the McKee Board's Food of Directors. Uh, image of Debbie was used on packaging and advertising, and then you know, eventually moved to full color. They sponsor NASCAR, uh, Ford Fusion, and yeah, so that's a little bit. Oh, Drake's is based in Wayne, New Jersey. Uh, uh, that's near where my sister lives. Uh, hostess owned Drake's from 1998 to 2012. Uh, and yeah, cool. So uh, that's a little bit about uh, uh, cakes and stuff. And uh, Scoots will be back with more about this episode of Great British Bake Off right now. All right. So the next thing, let's see what else came up in this episode here. A couple other things that caught my eye. Uh, Russian doll. 
Uh, and I don't know if you've seen the series Russian Doll, uh, but if you haven't, highly check, <laughs> recommend checking it out. Uh, I've been meaning to rewatch it. Uh, it, was, it was so good, and just uh, relationally, the performances. But anyway, um, Russian dolls are wooden dolls decreasing of decreasing size placed in one another at the term Matra Yoshka, Matra Yoshka, Matra Yoshka, little matron, is a diminutive, I'm having trouble with multiple words, diminutive uh, of uh, the Russian female first name Matra Onya or Matrosha, Matrosha. A set of them consists of a wooden figure which separates at the middle from top to bottom to reveal a smaller figure of the same sort inside, which has in turn another figure inside of it, and so on. Uh, The first nested doll set, according to Wikipedia, was made in 1890. Um, And... uh, Let's see. Traditionally, the outside layer is a woman dressed in a sarafan, a long, shapeless, traditional uh, Russian uh, jumper dress. Uh, the figures inside may be of any gender. The smallest in- innermost doll is typically a baby turned from a single piece of wood. Much of the artistry is in the painting of each doll, which can be elaborate. And they also then follow a theme, you know, it could be fairy tale characters, Soviet leaders, uh, in the West, they're also called babushka dolls. Um, uh, first, as I said, was a uh, crafted in 1890, at the children's educational workshop. And, uh, it was, uh, one of the, the brother of one of the founders of the educational workshop, which was designed to make and sell children's toys. Uh, the inspiration is not clear, uh, though it could have been inspired by a Japanese Honshu doll, uh, but those can't be placed inside of one another. And uh, let's see, ordinarily, or ordinarily they're crafted from linden trees. There's a mi- misconception that they're carved from one piece of wood, but rather they're produced using a lathe can, ex- equipped with a balance bar. Uh, four heavy, two feet long, distinct type of chisels, calipers, uh, particular to set of the doll. Uh, wood carver uniquely crafts each set of wooden calipers. Uh, yeah, there's uh, themes. There's a uh, world record. Uh, the largest set is a 51 piece, uh, completed in 2003. The tallest doll is uh, 53.97 centimeters and as a metaphor uh they're often a symbol of the feminine feminine side of russian culture uh and associated with russia's views of family and fertility uh also as a symbol for mother in russia uh metaphorically you they're often used metaphorically as a design paradigm uh, the nested doll principle. This is popular. I've heard this in storytelling. It denotes a recognizable relationship of an object with an object that appears in the, 
the design of many other natural crafted objects. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's not the onion metaphor is similar when an out, like the peeling of an onion. In 2020, the Unicode Assortium approved the Mater Yoshka doll as one of the new emoji characters. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, I think that's everything. My mom had one of these from Russia. Uh, my parents went to Russia, or the so actually they went to the Soviet Union on a um, a trip where my dad was like a volunteer trip uh, uh, to help with something uh, in uh, the eighties, and that was one of the things they brought back. Uh, uh, the next thing that came up is, is zucchini or corrugate, uh, a zucchini, corrugate, baby marrow, summer squash is a vining herbaceous plant, uh, had some for lunch yesterday, uh, whose fruit is, are harvested when their immature seeds are soft and edible. It is closely not re- closely related, but not identical to the marrow. Ordinary zucchini are, uh, I was thinking of the cucumber. I don't see it there. Maybe one of those, I don't know, maybe we'll learn more. I had a cucumber for lunch, not a zucchini or a corrugate. Uh, ordinary zucchini are fruit or a shade of a shade of green. Golden zucchinis, deep orange or yellow. They can grow one meter in length, but normally are harvested about 15 to 25 centimeters. Uh, my daughter, here's it. My daughter does not like zucchini. I do. Uh, corrugate is used in Brit, British, uh, Malaysian, and New Zealand uh, cultures. Uh, it's loaned from the French, where corrugate is a diminutive of uh, corge or marrow. Uh, it talks more about the history and flower culinary uses. But I just wanted to look up what corrugate was because I didn't know what it was, ramen. Talk about something that had like a sustained, um, like a, like high cuisine, like the ramen, I guess you can't call it a ramen craze now because it's just, uh, ramen has become another, I mean, it was already a comfort food, but now it's more of a, like a comfort food, like a, I don't know, there hasn't been any mass market ramen places, but it is something in most places you can have a option of at least one or two or three good uh, uh, ramen places, or, or, you know, in the past it would have just been noodle or pho. So ramen, those are Japanese noodle soup, Chinese wheat noodles served in a meat or fish-based based broth flavored with soy sauce or miso. Toppings such as uh, sliced pork, nori, uh, scallions. Uh, every region in Japan has its own variation of ramen. And uh, let's see what else we can learn. It's uh, it's a Japanese adaptation of wheat noodles, according to Wikipedia. One theory is that it was introduced in the 1660s uh, by a Chinese Neo-Confucian scholar. Uh, and uh, that's how it got introduced to Japan, though historians reject that as a myth uh, that just embellishes the history of ramen. 
more plausible theory as it was introduced by Chinese immigrants in the late 19th century or early 20th century in Yokohama. Uh, and there is a Yokohama Ramen Museum. Uh, and then it made its way from China to Japan in 1859. Uh, by 1900, uh, many restaurants uh, were serving Chinese uh, cuisine and offered a simple dish of noodles that were cut rather than hand-pulled noodles uh, with broth and salt and pork bones. Also, it would be served in food stalls. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, uh, after World War II, uh, you know, there wasn't like Japan. Then in forty-five, there was a, not a good rice harvest, uh, which caused food food shortages and Japanese r- reduced their rice production. And uh, the U.S. Uh, flooded the market, of course, uh, to deal with cheap uh, wheat flour to deal with the food shortages. So, from nineteen fifty-eight to nineteen fifty one, bread consumption increased. Uh, but we also found its way into ramen, and uh, uh, then uh, modern period instant noodles. They were invented in uh, 1958 uh, by Momofuku and Ando, uh, the founder of Nissan Foods. Uh, let's see, instant ramen allowed anyone to make this dish just by adding boiling water. Uh, by the 80s, it was a uh, Japanese cultural icon studied throughout the world. Uh, local varieties were hitting the market uh, and could be even ordered by their regional names. Uh, and it's still popular food. Now it's popular in the quick cook instant way and then uh, what I consider like a higher cuisine level. Uh, there's uh, ramen noodles, there's ramen soup, uh, there's a variety of flavors, uh, there's regional variations, and there's even, like, uh, depending on, like, with the instant ramen, uh, like, you can, if you, depending on what movies you watch, you've probably seen, like, uh, uh, or, or pop culture you consume, like, oh, the, this, uh, or combining two different ones, uh, that's on my list of things to do. Uh, but yeah, that's a little bit about ramen. Uh, another thing is crumble. I think this was apple crumble, but crumble is a dish can be made in a sweeter, savory version. Although the sweet version is much more common. Uh, a sweet variety usually contains a stewed fruit topping with a crumbly mix of fat, usually butter, uh, flour, and sugar. A savory version uses meat, vegetables, and sauce, uh, with cheese replacing the sugar in the crumble mix. Uh, crumbles baked in the oven until the topping is crisp. And the dessert variety is often served with ice cream, oh boy, or custard. Uh, those savory variety can uh, be served with vegetables. And actually, this makes me think, like, I need to make some crumbles because, uh, I'm big on buying berries, like when they're in season, and then a strawberry, you know, make some. Uh, I'll put, you know, if if the strawberries are getting ready to go, I'll get them ready for like a strawberry shortcake, and then even blueberries, I'll make those into a compote, you know, and have that with uh, yo- like yogurt or uh, overnight oats, um, and you put a little bit of that in there, really, but plus your your dish, but. Uh, 
I was like, man, I could be making that into a dessert or say, okay, now I have a, like a blackberries and uh, blueberries. Uh, or even this one has a blackberry and apple crumble on, uh, what do you call it? This is a Wikipedia. But yeah, popular fruits, uh, popular fruits include apple, blackberry, peach, rhubarb, gooseberry, or go- is that gooseberry and plum? What's a gooseberry? I've always wondered that. The only place I know gooseberries from is uh, fruit cups as a kid. Like, uh, was that called? Fruit cocktail. And I said, isn't this a grape? Uh, be able to say, no, it's a gooseberry. Uh, gooseberry, according to Wikipedia, is a common name for a, uh, uh, many species of ribs. Ribes, uh, R-I-B-E-S, also includes currants. As a large number of plants uh, with similar appearance, uh, they're edible. They're in the history. They're indigenous to many parts of Europe, Western Asia, typically grown in alpine thickets and rocky woods uh, in the lower country from France eastward to the Himalayas and peninsular India. Cops, hedgerows, old ruins. The gooseberry has been cultivated for so long. It's just tough to distinguish wild bushes from feral ones. You'll, nothing like a feral gooseberry uh, to determine where the gooseberry fits into the native floor of the islands. Uh, common as it is now on some slopes of the lower Alps, uh, Piedmont, and Savoy, it's uncertain uh, whether the Romans were acquainted with the gooseberry. Have you become acquainted with the gooseberry? Uh, Though there's a vague passage in Pliny the Elder's natural history about Italy in the hot summers. Although gooseberries are now abundant in Germany and France, it does not appear to have been grown there in the Middle Ages. Uh, though the fruit was used medicinally for the cooling properties of the juice uh, in fevers, uh, Fayberry was an old English name. Uh, it's described in the 16th century by William Turner. Uh, modern cultivation, uh, it's used as insect habitats or for the f- fruit. And yeah, f- uh, there's a lot more about gooseberries. Uh, but yeah, I guess that'll be it for this uh, half of this bonus episode. Uh, maybe I'll have myself a fruit cocktail later. Uh, good night, everybody.